When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 89, Gwyneth's Heir Apparent. Llewellyn ap Yorwith was dead. On the throne of Gwyneth sat his son, David. Llewellyn's best hope as heir to pass the kingdom to, the son of Joan, the half-sister of the current king, Henry III. If anyone thought blood relations were going to make it an easier time for David as nephew to the king, they were not paying attention. David came to Henry in 1240. He did homage to his liege lord, likely expecting to receive a crown, specifically the crown of Wales. He felt he was owed as the son of the Lord of Snowdon and the erstwhile Prince of Wales. Instead, he received a coronet, proclaiming him simply the Prince of North Wales, and he was then knighted by the king. Effectively limited, effectively shortened, and, in other words, kept away from any significant titles by the king. Lord of Snowdon, of course, is subtext towards the idea that he was the Prince of Wales, which is something Henry apparently did not want. So why did Henry snub his nephew? Simply put, David was to be kept in his place, heir or not, family or not, Henry would not have a united, free Welsh kingdom on his western border. The Welsh were to be kept divided and confused, to squabble over smaller and smaller portions and scraps. Combined with this snub was the aggressive tendencies of the marcher lords, who wanted their pound of flesh after being defeated by Llewellyn. As well, other Welsh lords and kings were circling to regain their independence from Gwyneth, now that it did not seem to have the same sort of power structure or person in charge. One thing to note over these years, the borders of the native-born leaders and the marcher lords were not static. Some years, the native-born leaders controlled most of the borders of Wales. At other times, on the far west and north, it was about the only areas that they controlled. This was a sign of the constant changing nature of the area under Gwyneth's control and the ability of its neighbors to gain measures of independence. Most of Wales fell into either the Gwyneth Allied camp or the Marcher Lords. Only Powys maintained a fluctuating state of mixed allegiances. One thing to keep in mind is that even as we mention the main kings and kingdoms, there were minor cantrips across Wales that would have had levels of independence that in the past would have made them sub-kingdoms in effect. They were now more on par with the nobility of England who controlled duchies, counties, and earldoms. They played an important part, but they were smaller units under a liege lord in Wales. This was usually a marcher lord or a native-born prince. They owed their allegiance to them and effectively were not their own men. In a feudal system, you need levels of lords who 
could run different areas because there were little national bureaucratic arm and there was no real enforcement of laws except by local militias and local strongmen. So that job usually fell to the Lord because they were the only ones powerful enough in the area to afford such options as having you know, a, a steady military or a hired group of thugs effectively to go around and make sure everybody towed the line and paid their taxes. Even in Wales, where money was scarce and most were still fairly poor, there would be levels of expectations that you must be able to create linkages of duty, which would model what was going on in the rest of Europe. The reality was, Wales was no different in that respect from the rest of these kingdoms, nor should they be expected to be. Mostly, they lived, fought, married, and died pretty much like everyone else in the Christian parts of Europe at this period. The days of being an outlier, if they ever existed, were long past. David ascended to his throne with the help of his father, of course, and the lords who owed him fealty, but also with the help of marcher lords. The Earl of Chester was a long-time ally to the Aberfra dynasty. But in 1237, the Earl died without an heir, and the earldom went back to the crown. This would, of course, be a huge issue down the road, and it also set in place major problems for the princes of Wales after this point. But it also meant David needed friends amongst the lords if he could not count on his uncle's support. Llewellyn had tried to create relationships with the de Breos family after capturing William and allying them through marriage with his daughter Isabella. However, William was executed by Llewellyn after William, of course, was found to have slept with Joan, Llewellyn's wife. De Breos was a powerful family who, at the time, owned a large amount of land in the mid and southeast of Wales. They controlled Abergavenny and, most importantly, Bulleth, which its castle actually controlled the north-south route on the River Wye, which was an important trade route and shipping route across Wales at that point in time. Unfortunately for Welsh independence, Llewellyn's anger at William set the seeds for David's downfall. As Isabella's mother was Eva, and she was related to another major marcher lord family by marriage, the Marshalls. William Marshall was an ambitious and aggressive man, who we've mentioned before, who was always combating against the native lords, trying to grab land and fighting for territory. In fact, him and Llewellyn had collided previously. His son Gilbert was no less aggressive, and he caused David all sorts of trouble by attacking along the borders of Carmarthen and Pembroke, capturing long-disputed town of Cardigan, working in concert with his allies in Powys, Griffith ap Gwynwynwyn. He was able to defeat David's forces and also brought him in open conflict with the Welsh forces in and around there. This, of course, would drag the king into Wales as Henry joined the other Welsh rulers and Gilbert and the other marcher lords in taking on David in 1241. And just after a year prior, he had swore fealty to the, his uncle. David was then dealing with the military effects of the English marching into his country. David sought for peace when he saw that he was about to face the English might and in the settlement gave lands back to both Southern Powys and to Marshall. But Gilbert lost his life at a tournament which brought Henry's anger at the Marshall family, mostly because he disliked tournaments 
as he saw them as dangerous, which of course they proved to be, and the death of Gilbert meant that he lost a powerful ally. So Walter, yet another son of William Marshall, was disowned for a brief while from his earldom. The Marshalls would not outlive David, as they would all die without a legitimate heir by 1244 themselves. And unfortunately for them, the entire holdings went back to the crown, at least briefly. In 1244, Griffith, David's half-brother, died trying to escape the Tower of London. Reports in the sources say that this was due to an accident. He fell from a fashioned rope made of sheets. Uh, basically, the accusation was is that he was too heavy, in other words, fat, for the rope, and the rope broke. Uh, the interesting part of all this was, of course, is that Griffith was originally held in Cricketh Castle in David's territory until Henry took him and held him from 1241, basically about the time that he defeated David, and was using Griffith as a tool in his toolbox in dealing with David. Griffith's wife, Senna, possibly a daughter of Caradoc Ap Thomas, a minor noble from Anglesey, tried to pay off Henry to get her husband freed. Henry took the money, but did not free Griffiths, because according to some sources, as I said earlier, it served him to have a ready-made troublemaking heir to the throne of Gwyneth in his possession. This would, of course, be a strategy that is much used in the English court of taking noble hostages to use them to try and deflect and create problems for other nobles. Uh, it's a fine old tradition going back as far as Ethelston. So this is nothing new, and certainly it was something of a problem for the Welsh, because every time that they had what they thought was control, this would happen to them and, and continually happen to them. Uh, the Welsh native lords, with the exception of Powys, rose with David in revolt over the death of his brother. While clearing out contestants to the throne, as it would do with the death of Griffith, it nonetheless would be seen as a slight that he had died in an English prison. John Lestrange and John of Monmouth were sent to get things under control. They were basically lieutenants of Henry, but they failed utterly in the cause. Because of that, of course, as you gain victories, in David's case, his stature grew. Certainly any Welsh lord that could defeat the larger English forces would receive more respect and honor. David also showed his shrewdness during this period from 1244 to 1246 by reaching out to both the Pope and King Louis IX of France. He had sought a French alliance, which would be a long-term thing that both the Welsh and the Scottish would try and do, while trying to argue for Welsh independence from the England, which may have been an outgrowth of Welsh suspicions of Henry and his various lords who hardly seemed to understand or at least try to get along with the Welsh. The death of Griffith worked as a catalyst to allow David to expand his grip and to make an international appeal for Wales. Once again, during this period, David took up the title of Prince of Wales, not just what the English king had offered him. In other words, he went beyond what even his father had assumed, because even though uh, Llewellyn was considered to be Prince of Wales by most, he didn't affect the title himself during his lifetime and in fact never used that title. He used Lord of Snowdon quite often. But that wasn't what he was attempting to do here. And he was seen as a leader in the national cause against the English, which of course would be important and of course build national strength. And of course, 
Probably many of the Welsh themselves must have viewed him as worthy of that title for him to use it. And certainly if he's going about reaching out to other kingdoms and other nations and to the Pope, he apparently must feel like he has enough respect from others to do that. Because other leaders didn't try this before this, at least not to this extent. And certainly it had been a while since any of them had reached out to another country for an alliance in the face of the English if you want to say oppression. And to be fair, nothing gains legitimacy quicker than victories, so his ability to win victories were important. Henry, of course, initially stayed out of the dispute, but it must have seemed obvious that things were spiraling out of control. Llewellyn's heir was getting out of control, and the lords he tasked with bringing him to heel had utterly failed to do so. By 1245, Henry, in August, went and attacked David. He hired Irish mercenaries to attack Anglesey, raiding and pillaging the ancestral street of the Aberfraw dynasty. Henry did not really follow up on this, as he decided instead to build a castle and leave his marshaled forces in place. This likely gave David the time he needed to repel Henry whenever he finally would decide to cross the Conwy, which he was building the castle on the eastern side of the Conwy, one would presume in preparations to actually move against the Welsh, or maybe he was hoping that the Welsh would finally give up because of the overwhelming force, or maybe he just didn't want to waste lives and material trying to attack a enemy who was well-positioned and had the backing of the public. Either which way, the attack never materialized. By February 1246, David Apthuelan, King of Gwyneth, Prince of Wales, died. He was called the Shield of Wales by the Annals, which is an interesting turn of phrase, and he died at the height of his power, but likely just before a rather large humbling by the English, it must be admitted. Because it's hard to see how he would have got out of that battle. If that had happened, it would have been very similar to what had happened in 1241, where he would have had to have sued for peace. And that ability to not have been defeated allows him normally to have an honored place, and thus I think the reason why the Annals would use that titling. What's interesting, though, is that David usually, by sources and by later scholars, is usually called weak, or at least a lesser king compared to his father and his nephew. Mostly, I think, in evaluating him, that the one thing we can say about David is as reign was bloody and at times divisive. He lost allies rather than make them early on, because of course he lost his marcher lord allies and never seemed to be able to gain any more. Even his wife wasn't really helpful enough to create more linkages with other marcher lords, and of course the fact that the two biggest controlling factions effectively disappeared made it difficult for him because they would go back to the crowns and the crown had no interest in helping him. So, of course, they were problems instead of solutions. And it took time to gather the Welsh to actually help him out. And that left him with a rather bloody nose, typically. And Henry probably could have had a totally situ different set of circumstances on his hands had that been different. There's a lot of lost opportunity here for David and for really for the kingdoms of Wales at this point because had David been able to win and had he been able to defeat him, then it would have offered him another opportunity to allow for an alliance with other countries, with 
alliances with places like France with the permission of the Pope, be it in name only as far as recognition goes, no, it doesn't give him independence. But it, what it does is it backs him up on an international scale. If David then goes to, say, the Holy Roman Emperor, to, you know, the kings of of the areas in Christian Spain, he's going to have a chance to get some help, or at least to get some acknowledgement of his independence, which would give him an opportunity to take on Henry III in a more level circumstance, especially if he convinced Louis IX to send troops and to actually help him out. Because realistically, one of the things that happens in the medieval period quite often is a lot of the knights are actually on pay. They're not free. You know, it's it's not like a national army in the way we think of, you know, the, the king of France doesn't just send over his troops to go help out. There's a level of you have to pay for this first. So he'd have to convince him to help fund this whole mess because there's no likelihood that David's going to have the funds to be able to fund a mercenary campaign against Henry to be able to defend himself. But had he been able to do this, had he been able to get that measure of victory, there may have been a chance for Wales to survive. There may have been a chance for Gwyneth specifically to survive and to slowly regain control of the areas they were losing. Because make no mistake, Henry's going to punish them for this defeat. And in the negotiations that will happen, he will actually re-seize the four cantrips away from the eastern half of Gwyneth. And once again, Powys will be made a little bit more powerful. And again, the marcher lords will grab more territory. And you'll have this continued problem that Gwyneth has ran into where they're cornered. And really, they have to rely on a bunch of smaller nobles for any sort of alliances. And without the layers of marcher lords between them and Henry, and of course his son, Edward, who now is kicking around at this stage, who will eventually take control of some of these marcher areas, this is going to create the stage that will create the final showdown and unfortunately create the end of Welsh independence. Because without a buffer state between the English and the Welsh, this is where we go. And once you have the king's lands buffing and buttressing up against Welsh lands, it's now a matter of time before they continually get into conflict. They've already seen conflict in the past where the king's interest would cross over with a Welsh king's interest. And it's cost the Welsh kings and the Welsh princes territory and independence in some cases. The other thing to note, and I think which is fascinating to watch, is how often Powys flutters between the two polar opposites their allegiance with the king and their allegiance with Gwyneth. And it seems to be at this stage that they're very much on the side of the English. And that in of itself is problematic because had Gwyneth been able to tighten its alliance with Powys, had they been able more to the point to kick the reigning dynasty off of the throne in, in Powys and keep them off, either through execution or through exile, 
I think they would have had a much better time of it. It would have given them access to better farmlands, to better resources. One of the greatest problems that, of course, we've talked about in the past that the northern Welsh kingdoms have is the lack of resource access, the lack of arable farmland, the lack of population. So they can't appeal to a massive amount of people. They don't have massive amounts of resources that they can come up against the English and take them on in a one-on-one fight and have a chance in a lot of respects. They have to rely on what would be looked at as as not very nice and and unpleasant tactics because, well, in our modern parlance, we wouldn't see this as a big deal, but to some people at the time, it was seen as unnecessary tactics because you have to do that to survive. You have to be willing to do what you can if you're going to fight a bigger army and a bigger enemy. And while the Welsh certainly fought in a similar way to all European powers at the time, they did take advantage of their terrain, because any fool would. If you've got terrain that allows you to hide, that allows you to attack an enemy and ambush them, you certainly do use that, and they will use it to their advantage at different times. But the reality of it is, is you can see the writing on the wall. We've seen it for probably about a 100 years now. But now it's starting to become very apparent that the time is running out for them to finally break away or finally be defeated, and it's not going to end any other way. And we know now, of course, history being what it is, what happened, but the alternatives were always there. There was always an opportunity for things to change. They didn't because of various reasons. If Edward's not king for the amount of time he was, would the next king or the king before him, like Henry III, had the wherewithal to actually enforce his will on the Welsh the way Edward I did? Would there really be the same sort of situation if there was any other king? And we're going to look at this alternative history a little bit when we start to talk about, specifically with Owen Glyndwr later on, there's very much a point in his fighting where he could have won. And it's actually one that I don't think Llewellyn Ap Griffith has when he gets to the same point. But we'll talk about that later. We're going to start on Llewellyn and his brother Owen next time. Please join me again. Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for your participation. Thank you for retweeting, reposting, and doing all those things that you do. Be sure, if you have any questions, send them to the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can talk to me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod, or you can always get a hold of me through Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Take care. Have a great day. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, 
for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.